Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 21 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, here with everything you need to know in the career of the legendary Jack Nicholson. I'm really excited about today's episode because, as you heard me say at the end of the last show, this is a movie that I love. It's a comedy, a screwball comedy at that, and it is none other than 1975's The Fortune. Now, Let's do a quick recap of the year 1975 as it pertains to Jack's career. The Fortune is his third feature film of that year, out of a total of four. The fourth, if you don't know, and as you'll find out, is kind of an important one. And what is to be noted, I think, is how different each of these four films are. We started with The Who's Rock Opera Tommy, where Jack had a brief, albeit important, role. Then we took a hard left, and next up was a starring role in Michelangelo Antonioni's neo-noir art film, The Passenger. This week, we're shifting again into a whole new direction with a lighthearted comedy. And, of course, Jack's last work of that year was the Best Picture Oscar winner of that year, the drama in which Jack played the anti-hero Randall Patrick McMurphy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you could pick out one year from that decade to call the banner year for Jack's career, it's not even a contest. It's 1975, hands down. And what's great about The Fortune, right from the jump, is that it's Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty together, two of the bad boys of Mulholland Drive. Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty together, it's just so simpatico, like lock and key working together. Now, I first saw The Fortune when I was about 13 or 14, somewhere around there. I remember first seeing a quick preview for it on TV at my grandparents' house, Seeing that Jack was in it and being surprised that I had never heard of it before, as I thought I knew every title to Jack's name. And even at the time, I remember just briefly seeing the title go by and I thought it said The Fortune, but I wasn't totally sure. So after that, I eventually kind of forgot about it, though it did linger in the back of my mind as to what the movie was about and when it would be on and if they would show that preview again. So I don't remember how it came to be that I first saw it, but it was on TV at my grandparents' house, which leads me to believe I must have seen another preview and found it on the movie listings of the newspaper. So finally, saw it, loved it. I think initially the thing I loved was just the fact that it was a comedy, Because let's be real, how many intense, heavy films can a young adolescent take in in such a short period of time? And because I liked it so much, I obviously wanted to own a copy of it. This is an easy title to find now, but I remember at the time it was a little hard to come by. It was nowhere to be found at Blockbuster, so that was out. I'm pretty sure that I've told you how back then my mom had a subscription to Columbia House, 
where each month you filled out an order form and you could get movies on VHS? Well, it didn't seem to be an option available from Columbia House either. But here's what we did. I had been searching high and low for a physical copy of The Fortune. Internet searches came up with nothing. eBay, my backup whenever Blockbuster or Columbia House fell short, was also coming up with nothing. So my mom called Columbia House. I remember her sitting at the kitchen table, talking to the person on the other end, asking them point blank if they could get us a VHS copy of The Fortune. They didn't have the title available. So we had to give them every piece of info we knew about it. The title, The Fortune. The year, 1975. What is it? It's a comedy. Who's in it? Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty, of course. And I remember my mom asking me while she was on the phone, yeah, but who else? Who's the girl? So I said, Stockard Channing. And she repeated it over the phone to the person, Stockard Channing. Because we were unable to find it anywhere, this person from Columbia House went out of their way to specially order a copy of The Fortune. Sure enough, about a week or so later, a brand new VHS copy appeared in our mailbox. But I don't want you all to think that this was in any way a common occurrence at our house. For my mom to call anyone for something like this, I had to have been being a real pill about it. You know how sometimes you just need a kid to shut up? That was probably the case here. The Fortune was directed by Mike Nichols, who you'll remember had directed Jack just four years earlier in Carnal Knowledge. Screenplay by Adrian Joyce, also a name we've heard here before. She wrote the script for 1967's The Shooting and 1970's Five Easy Pieces. Produced by Mike Nichols and Don Devlin, starring Jack Nicholson as Oscar Sullivan, Warren Beatty as Nick Wilson, and Stockard Channing as Frederica Quintessa Bigard, or Freddie. Some backstory about the production here. I read that Warren Beatty and screenwriter Robert Town had been developing their screenplay for Shampoo since 1967, but they were unable to stir interest in the project. So Warren Beatty bundled it with the fortune, and that was how he convinced the finance head of Columbia Pictures to finance both films. Now, Jack was already signed on for his role in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but the principal photography was delayed, so that made Jack available to play the role of Oscar. But during filming, Jack had to deal with some pretty serious things going down in his private life, which I'll only briefly mention. Any longtime fan of Jack already knows this story. I know I've heard it multiple times throughout the years, but during the filming of The Fortune, a fact checker for Time magazine discovered that the woman who Jack had thought was his older sister was, in fact, his biological mother. And the woman who he thought was his mother was, in fact, his grandmother. So there was that. The other event that happened was his friend Cass Elliot died, Mama Cass from The Mamas and the Papas. 
And as some of you might know, there has always been a lot of rumors and misinformation as to her cause of death. And so to everyone listening, just for clarity's sake, Cass Elliot died in her sleep of heart failure. So these were two big events that both happened during filming. And sadly, it's been suggested that that's why in interviews, Jack has never talked about the fortune. So a rocky beginning for the production. The movie was distributed by Columbia Pictures and released on May 20th, 1975. The movie is set in the 1920s when there was a law in effect known as the Mann Act. The movie opens onto a title card which reads, During the 1920s in the United States, the law known as the Mann Act was much feared. It prohibited transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. Because of the Mann Act, a man who wanted to run off with a woman and was unwilling or unable to marry her would sometimes go to unusual lengths. Now the whole opening sequence that follows sets up our story. Freddie, played by Stocker Channing, climbs out the window of a large mansion. She runs down the driveway and through the front gates, carrying her suitcases and looking over her shoulder. She hurries into a waiting car just outside the gate, being driven by Nick, Warren Beatty. The two of them kiss passionately, embrace. Nick hands her a flask and they drive off. The whole time Nick is driving, Freddie is in his lap, chugging out of the flask, only taking breaks from the flask to kiss him even more. By now it's nighttime and Nick pulls the car up to a street corner where Oscar, played by Jack, is waiting with his suitcase. Oscar squeezes into the car with them, and now we've got the three of them, Nick, Freddie, and Oscar packed into the front seat. Freddie continues to take belts out of the flask and make out with Nick as he's driving. Who am I to think that you would care for me the way you do? I must be dreaming. Who would think I'd ever see the day when you Oscar, awkwardly sitting inches away from them, doesn't phase her in the slightest. They end up at the house of a justice of the peace in the middle of the night. They ring the doorbell, they go in, and then the camera pans over, and we're peering in through the window. The justice of the peace is marrying Oscar and Freddie, with Nick as the witness and the JP's wife is playing the piano. The whole time that they're going through the vows, Freddie's eyes are fixated on Nick. Justice of the Peace pronounces Oscar and Freddie husband and wife. Oscar moves in for a kiss and Freddie zooms past Oscar and dives into Nick's arms. At the mild surprise of the JP and his wife, as Oscar stands aside and smiles awkwardly. They pour some type of alcohol, looks like wine or sherry. Everyone raises a glass to toast the newlyweds. Freddie takes a sip from her glass 
and passes out cold, just straight down onto the floor like a sack of potatoes. After that opening sequence, Oscar and Nick are entering a train station, wheeling a large cart, carrying their luggage along with an unconscious Freddy. And Oscar is excited and raving how he can't believe he's married, and he speculates that his new wife has some kind of money tucked away, asking if it was her mother who left her something. Nick is all business. He's very serious, telling Oscar she doesn't have a dime to her name. It's all in daddy's hands. And he stops Oscar, grabs him by the lapel as they both let go of the car and it starts to roll away. He tells him the only reason he's even on this trip is because Nick was unable to get a divorce. And here's something that's unique about this movie compared to, I believe, any other role that Jack has had. Nick, Warren Beatty, is very much the alpha of this group. And Oscar, Jack's character, is definitely a second fiddle, so to speak, to Nick. It's really one of the only times in Jack's long list of roles that I've seen his character defer to another character. And it's not just the personalities. There's something very physical about it. Nick is very neatly dressed, very clean, off-white three-piece suits, hair slicked back, a very neatly trimmed mustache. Oscar is typically in a gray suit, not nearly as polished as Nick. But the thing that really stands out to me is his hair. Jack's hair is wild in the fortune, okay? I don't know what they did to his hair to get it to look like this, but it's very frizzy and very curly, by which I mean a very tight, unkempt, kinky type of curl. And it seems to be standing on end. Nick is taller than Oscar, so he also comes across as very physically imposing. Like, Nick is the tough guy, and Oscar is the runt who keeps getting pushed around. And this continues on into the next scene, where they're on the train, and it's night. Everyone is tucked away into their bunks, and Oscar peeks his head out of the curtain on his bed to whisper to Nick, who's in the bed below with the still unconscious Freddy. Nick! Nick! How is she? She's still out cold. Nick! Nick! What? Listen, doesn't she have some money in her own Will you right? get off of this? I told you it's all in daddy's hands, period. This is purely a love proposition between her and I, God damn it! But wait a minute, Nick. Listen. You may be saving me from the man act, kiddo, but I am saving you from the gallows. Now, when we get to Chicago, if you would prefer me to call the bank and point out the embezzlement of some $1,500 by their demo ex-bank teller, which I have covered at great personal cost. Come on, Nick, you don't have to make these unpleasant threats. Do you want to go to jail or do you want to go to California? California. All right. Something that is so simple but is so funny to me whenever I watch this movie is the way that Warren Beatty says, God damn it. He says it often and he's just so crisp in the way that he says it and with such gusto, like he pronounces every letter, God damn it. Like every time that I say, God damn it, I would like for it to sound 
just like that. And I will tell you, it was hard for me to decide what sound clips I should use for this episode because there are so many little things, little quips back and forth that are so clever that I wish I could share all of them with you. But I'm not trying to play the entire movie in this episode. So the following morning, Oscar is in the dining car seated at a table. Nick and Freddie enter the car, Freddie using Nick for balance. She is not feeling well, as you can imagine. As they get closer to Oscar's table, she actually looks like she could burst into tears at any moment. They sit down at the table and immediately her body goes down, just laid out face down on the table. Stockard Channing was the perfect choice, I think, to play Freddie. This was her first leading role. Prior to The Fortune, the only other film credits to her name were two uncredited roles and a part in a short film. And if you were wondering, yes, that was her voice that you heard singing with the opening music. Everybody knows who Stocker Channing is now because everybody has seen Grease. Everybody knows who Rizzo is. Don't act like you don't. But Grease came out in 1978. Three years prior to that, Stocker Channing was still an unknown. So essentially, The Fortune was her breakthrough film. Later on, Oscar is sitting by himself in one of the cars, slouching in the chair. Nick comes in, takes a seat in the empty chair next to him. You know how high the percentage of convictions on the Man Act is, kiddo? I'll bet you in round figures it's more than for murder, robbery, and rape, all told. Half of these kipos get snagged by just a simple lack of foresight. It's dumb. Dumb stuff. It's not necessary. Transporting a woman across a state line for immoral purposes. <laughs> That's a lot of crap. Where is, uh... Indisposed. Oh. Indisposed. And as the conversation turns to Freddy, Oscar manages to digress into a story about a common item that one would find in most bathroom cabinets and how his mother used to get him to go and purchase these items for her. She's sick again? Up in the saddle. Oh. Monthly? Oh, monthly. Yeah. Mousy's bedtime. The Mousy's what? That's what we call it. My mother when I was a kid. Now this takes me back. She used to have me run down to my mouse bed, she called them, so as I wouldn't be on to what they were and get embarrassed later I definitely did refuse to do it but then she'd say run down and get me a box of little mouse bits honey bud mouse bits yeah and the funny strips you know you've seen it the little mouse and his red coveralls and his little hole in the wall with a lot of little mousey furniture and uh, even a little bitty radio set 
the size of your fingernail, see? And a mousy little bed that he sleeps in. You've seen it. And she pointed this out to me. Looky there, Roscoe, at the cute little creep mousy in his mousy, mousy bed. Go down to Fatul's and get your mud a big box for the little mousy to lay his head. You didn't wonder what the hell she was doing with all these mice beds? No. Because women are afraid of mice. You know that, don't you? No, I didn't wonder. I'd have been curious. Mouse beds. I gotta tell Freddy that one. Right? Mouse beds. So they arrive at an airport in Chicago, from which they'll be traveling on to Los Angeles. Nick and Oscar are outside watching planes land with two very different reactions. Oscar is in awe, while Nick has nothing but a look of restrained terror. Freddie is inside the little airport talking to her father on the telephone. She comes out and she's in tears saying that he was hideous to her, that he's going to cut her off like she doesn't even exist. But after that brief dramatic display, she wipes her tears and they board the tiny rickety passenger plane, much to Nick's discomfort. The scene that takes place on the plane mid-flight is, I think, one of the best scenes in the movie. It's a small passenger plane, Freddie and Nick are seated across the aisle from each other. Oscar is seated directly behind Freddie. The sound of the engine is so excruciatingly loud, everyone has to scream if they want to speak to each other. That doesn't stop Oscar, who's so excited to be up in an airplane. He's leaning forward and screaming into Freddie's ear, asking her if she's enjoying herself blocking the aisle and driving Nick insane with his endless blather. But then finally, after a few moments of quiet, Oscar gets up and slips into the back of the plane. Next we see him. He's outside of the plane on the wing, clutching the side of the aircraft and the force of the wind almost blowing him right off. We see him right as his head slowly comes into view in Freddie's window, causing her to scream hysterically when she sees him. Nick, not impressed, says to Freddie, just ignore him. After the plane lands, the other passengers are all crowding around Oscar getting his autograph. But Nick does not share their enthusiasm. Oscar Sullivan. Thank you, miss. Thank you. Thank you very much. What is this? Guy walks a wing and supposedly his friends say nothing about it. No one's impressed. No one's impressed, jackass. Oh, sweetie. Ow. God damn it, I knew we should have assumed some names. You ever hear of Warmer Locklear? I asked you and I asked you, but no, no. You want to cause the whole thing to fizzle up in our faces. You want to put us all into striped suits. I don't agree. <laughs> that's rich. That's rich. <laughs> Did you ever once stop and think what a mess you'd have put me into if you'd fallen off? 
I thought I was going to fall off, I wouldn't have done it, Stumpo. Mm -hmm. I was optimistic I wouldn't. And I'll tell you why I did it if you're yeah. so interested. Wouldn't put my goddamn neck at risk. And Freddy's. No. would be out here across I don't know how many state lines without a husband. You've drawn unnecessary attention to us by falling off a plane and getting squashed to death. Come on, come on, will you hurry up? You want to know why I did it or not? I know why you did it. I know why you did it. I could drop my pants and do the same. The whole reason Oscar pulled that stunt was that during that whole trip, he's felt pretty much ignored. And basically, he wants equal treatment if he's going to be a part of this whole sham. So Nick acquiesces. He says, all right, I'm sorry. And he promises that Oscar can be a part of the decision making from now on. From there, they get into a taxi and continue on to the apartment that Nick found for the three of them. It's in this really bland, dry, deserted-looking complex with a bunch of other identical apartments. And that's where they meet their landlady, Mrs. Gould, played by Florence Stanley. Mrs. Gould seems somewhat disinterested in these three at first glance, but you're going to find out shortly after She's actually quite the busybody. You know, casually glancing into windows while she's out watering the grass, that's a big thing for her. So Nick introduces Oscar and Freddie as Mr. and Mrs. Dix. I don't know where he came up with that name, but okay. And himself as Mr. Wilson and the brother of Mrs. Dix. To afford this apartment, Nick has taken a job at a local car dealership as we see him unsuccessfully attempt to entice an older couple into buying a new automobile, the kind you have to start up with a hand crank at the front. And Nick has been on Oscar to also pull his weight, but Oscar would rather spend his days sunbathing out on the grass or laying on the couch reading the newspaper. And one day, instead of heading out to get a job, as Nick has been needing him to do, Oscar instead takes money that was given to him by Nick and buys a sweet little gift for Freddy, a tiny little chick, as no other pets are allowed there. And this incenses Nick. All right, that's enough. Put that thing away. A little, it just breaks me to pieces. I'm gonna break it to pieces and put it in the garbage. Look at it with me, sweetie. No, I will not look at it. Just for one second. Boy, this character will go to any extremes to get attention. Well, I tell you, he better get himself a job this week or that's it. No ifs, ands, or buts, I mean it. Let him play the big gift giver with his own money, the little Bolshevik. Honey, just look at this little baby thing. I'm going to throw it out the window. I think it thinks I'm its mother. But the thing is, this is not all for nothing. Shortly thereafter, Oscar walks in on Freddy as she's home alone, dancing the tango with the chick. He's brought her some bird seed. He goes over and he sits down on the couch and beckons Freddy to come over and sit on his lap. She's hesitant at first, but... He promises to keep his hands to himself. So she goes over, sits down on his lap, pays Oscar really no mind, though. And his hands are to himself, as he said they would be. So she leans over to look at her chick, tries calling it over, 
and Oscar mentions he never even got a kiss for it. Freddy sits upright and says, you did so. And Oscar says, just give me a little kiss. She sees where this is headed. So she says, she'll just give him a little peck on the cheek. She goes to do that. And in an instant, it results in the two of them horizontal on the couch, Oscar on top of Freddy, kissing her face all over. She bursts up, exclaiming she can't do this to Nikki. And she hurries off to her room. Oscar follows, explaining who's the real one being cheated upon in the eyes of God. So he slowly sits down beside her on the bed, and they pick up right where they left off. Now, you'll remember how I said that Mrs. Gould's thing is she glances up into windows while she's out watering the grass. Well, that is what she does at this moment. Not being able to see much, just Oscar and Freddy's feet at the foot of the bed. But right at that moment, Nick pulls up to the sidewalk, deciding to come home for lunch and other activities, as it were. He greets Mrs. Gould as he strides to the front door. And the moment that the front door opens and closes behind Nick, instantaneously, Freddy's bedroom window opens and out spills Oscar. Shirt thrown on, pants unbuckled, he quickly collects himself and in a similar stride to Nick's, makes his way to the sidewalk as if nothing happened to make it look like he's just arriving home as well. But as Nick and Freddy are now in the bed, Nick picks up from the bed a little tin that reads Trojan and upon finding it puts two and two together. Oscar comes in, goes into the kitchen, goes into some cabinets, spreads some peanut butter onto a slice of bread. Nick slides into the room and places the tin right in front of Oscar. Big fight ensues. Nick grabs a whisk out of a drawer. Oscar still holds his butter knife, both of them at the ready. But this is where we learn what Oscar has been up to. You see, Oscar was right all along. Freddy is, in fact, in line to get millions, not from her father, but her mother, because her mother is Quintessa. Oscar disappears into the bathroom, but before he does, he tosses the slice of bread that he's holding at the back of one of the dining room chairs, and guys, it lands perfectly, like the back edge of the chair catches the bread perfectly, like, like a spear right through the center. I was so impressed at all one move, you know? But anyway, he brings out a half empty box of, you know, mouse beds that reads Quintessa in big letters, tosses it at Nick, proclaiming she's the mouse bed heiress. And now there's no loopholes getting in the way of Oscar getting his share when he and Freddie divorce because he's just consummated the marriage. Freddie becomes enraged at the two of them, yelling that she hates them both. She's going to get on a train and go home, and she's going to give all of that money away. This last part stops Nick and Oscar dead in their tracks. Nick's tone changes at the idea of losing this fortune, and he is suddenly back to his normal self, saying, Freddie, let's calm down now and think about who's actually been betrayed here 
And later on that night, with Freddie not speaking to either one of them, Nick and Oscar go out and they're sitting outside, I believe it's at a gas station, just commiserating over the millions they've lost. Nick is not looking at Oscar. He's got his head down in his hands. And Oscar makes a gun with his hand and holds it up to his temple. And he says, I'd like to take a gun and bang, solve all my problems. Nick looks up at Oscar and asks, you could do that to her? Oscar didn't mean it that way, but Nick insists that he can read between the lines. They contemplate this fleeting idea that if they were to do such a thing, Oscar assures Nick he would go completely halves with him. So they both go back to laying the charm on Freddie, And it works. She seemingly forgives both of them. Her birthday arrives, the day that she's supposed to receive this fortune. And in the next scene after that, you can go ahead and file this next scene under the heading, Things That Wouldn't Fly Today. Because we see Nick with his face covered in brown makeup, dressed as a snake charmer. He and Oscar are purchasing a snake from a man at a random location out in the desert. Oscar is speaking on the snake charmer's behalf. And even Oscar is wearing this ridiculous black wig. And he's telling the man that, no, it has to be absolutely poisonous or the charmer won't work with it. Their bright idea is that they could go out into the desert and make it look like Freddy was bitten by the snake. When that idea falls through, it occurs to them that they should make it look like suicide. So the following night, they get Freddy tanked, which is not asking much. They've got music blaring. Freddy is singing along with it. She's climbing across furniture. When she ultimately passes out, first, they try to bring her just outside and drown her in the lily pond at the complex. When that doesn't work, they put her into a trunk and decide they're going to toss her into a river. First problem is that their car gets a flat, so they go and they steal a bus. Then they get to a bridge, they stop right in the middle of it, hoist the trunk down from the roof of the bus since they couldn't get it to fit in through the doors. They get ready to pull her out so they can toss her over. But this bridge, which was totally empty, in seconds becomes a parking lot, traffic backing up in both directions. Oscar gets on top of the bus, tries to direct people around, but there's cars coming from every direction, so that's useless. And meanwhile, Nick, trying not to look conspicuous, sets the trunk down on the ground and just sits down on it very properly with one leg crossed over like a gentleman. So when that plan falls through, they plow through the traffic and bring the trunk to the beach and carry her out to the bay. They're just ready to get her out of the trunk and toss her in until Nick has to go back to the bus to get her shoes. As Nick gets to the bus, Oscar hears a noise. Turns out it's just a young couple looking for a place to park. And as a quick side note, the boy of that couple is a very young Christopher Guest, who you probably best know from This Is Spinal Tap and is married to Jamie Lee Curtis. So Oscar, not knowing where that sound is coming from, 
panics and sets the trunk into the water with Freddy still inside. Nick comes out of the bus with Freddy's shoes just in time to see this happen and all hell breaks loose. supposed to take her out of the trunk, goddammit! Oh, is that gonna look like suicide? Now, how is that gonna look like suicide? Oh, God! My mind went blank! Get in there and get it back! I thought I saw somebody and I got excited! Come on, come on! Get in there and get it back! We gotta get it back! Boy, oh boy! But before they can go in after the trunk, a fisherman appears beside them at the bay. And this fisherman is played by... Scatman Crothers. This is now the second feature out of four that Scatman Crothers and Jack share together. No, hey, you shut up. I'm not going to take the blame for every single little thing. Oh, God. <laughs> I tell you, I've seen more trash thrown into that bay. Well, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I, we, don't, we don't know the first thing about it. People throw more refuse in there, you could shake a stick at it. Well, we're just sitting here. I am on my own business. I've stood out there and seen toilet seats floating by. Huh? Pretty as you please. <laughs> I don't doubt it. Believe me, people ought to be shot. So, of course, with somebody there, the trunk floats away and they can't go in after it. So now they're left having to come up with a new plan completely on the fly. They get back into the bus. Oscar drives while Nick sits in the back, still keeping all his wits about him, and he deliberates. This calm attitude, though, only lasts momentarily. Yeah, but what if... No, 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 it's got to sink, I'm telling you. Go along with me eventually. It's got the trunks don't float, goddammit. What if it does say? What are you going to say if it does? What am I going to say? What are we going to say? What are we going to say? To tell the truth. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. What I'm thinking is, just in case, I'm thinking we ought to have a plan whereby we leave town. No, no, no. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. First of all, we'll get back to the house. No hotel. No, no, no. We proceed just according to plan. According to plan. We get up. We uh, find the note. Huh? And, no, we change the note. We change the note. Uh, we get alarmed. Huh? And uh, then I run over to Mrs. Gould's. Huh? Uh, you call the police. Oh, and, uh, God. You tell him the story. No, you tell him, Nick. I'm not going to know what to say. That's what I've been telling you, what I told you. God damn it. Now pay attention. That's all we know. Oh, God, Nick. I'm not going to be able to remember all this. All right. Just act shocked and break down. Yeah. Just act shocked and break down. That's all. In other words, I don't go to the hotel. No, no. We just go back to the house, okay? Back to the house. That's all we know. That's all I know. What I'm thinking, though, is just in case, I think we okay, better... Okay, let's go back to the beach. Back to the beach? Yeah, I'm not going to go beach. back to Never the beach. Never left the scene. Oh, God. Oh, no, oh, I'm not... I could no more go Don't back there than the you. Don't shrink on me, Wait a minute. That thing will never sink. That goddamn thing will never sink. Now look what you got me into, you homicidal maniac. You son of a bitch. Uh, get out of there. By the next morning, the trunk has floated out to the shore. It opens slowly... A disheveled Freddy, soaked through and through, stands up and stumbles out, searches all around her, confused, makes her way up to the road. An oncoming car pulls over. The man lets her know that she's at Long Beach, and he gives her a ride. The bus, now being driven by Nick, 
passes this car from the other direction. Oscar spots the trunk on the beach. So the two of them run down there, reach the trunk, and they find that it's wide open and Freddy is nowhere to be found. When they get back home, they're both sitting on the couch, nervous. Oscar is chugging milk from a glass bottle, while Nick has a tall glass of what appears to be straight scotch. Nick tells Oscar to go over to Mrs. Gould's, act like he's very distraught. But as Oscar goes to exit, he sees two policemen examining the bus that they've parked outside. The policemen come and knock on their door, and Oscar goes into a panic. But Nick tells him to remain calm and follow his lead and pushes Oscar down onto the couch before opening the door. I'm Mr. Wilson. This is Mr. Dix, right? Oh, God! God! I'm so upset! What's wrong with him? It's his wife. It's his wife. I'm really like a horse. They haven't been getting along. And uh, when we got up this morning, uh, uh, we, uh, we were asleep, you know. I was just going to call you. We, we got up this morning and we, found, we, got, up, we got up and we found this. Would you sit I just got caught in a web of circumstances. Uh, yeah. You know anything about that bus? I'm this type of oh, guy. Yes, I, I, I can explain yeah, that. Like uh, Oscar, Oscar, will you shut up, because Oscar? Because I actually Oscar, had very You're getting too distraught, Oscar, because we can explain the bus. <laughs> the, bus wasn't, I, the bus wasn't my idea. The bus wasn't my idea. He stole the bus. I just went along, but it was his idea to put her in the trunk because I didn't know what at the time I was doing. Oscar, I don't know what you're going on about, Oscar. I'm not this kind of person. They just want to know about the goddamn bus. Bus? Yeah, bus. Uh, It was just in the nature of a practical joke. (laughs) Put who in a trunk? You will find that in a very roundabout way, in true screwball comedy fashion, Everything kind of works out in the end for each character, though maybe not in the way that they each originally planned. This movie was not a commercial success. It, unfortunately, (laughs) only broke even at the box office. But god damn, I love this movie. It is such a hidden treasure. So please, if you are a fan of comedies, get you a copy of The Fortune. It is available pretty much everywhere. Streaming on demand, Amazon Prime, DVD, and Blu-ray. I promise you will not have to call Columbia House or any other service for that matter to see it. So for next week, here's the thing. It is not going to be the film that you think it is. Next week, We will have our quote-unquote lost episode. Yes, the bane of my existence, the most impossible of all of Jack's movies to find, 1971's A Safe Place, starring Orson Welles and Tuesday Weld. The week after that, we will discuss the film that would give us Jack's first Oscar-winning role. 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review and a nice rating. Subscribe to You Don't Know Jack anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media. That's You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. 
visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover more great original podcasts. So until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs>